to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. It's a safe bet that everyone listening to the show is interested, at some level, in the American Civil War. But what if you're a self-proclaimed Civil War obsessive? What title would you want to hold? Perhaps Director of History and Education at the Civil War Trust? Perhaps you'd be a licensed battlefield guide at Gettysburg? Perhaps you'd be the author or editor of more than 30 Civil War books and articles? Or, like tonight's guest, you could be all three. We'll talk with Civil War obsessive Gary Edelman tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu Edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, part of the University of North Carolina system, but not representing the system, not speaking for the university. I'm speaking only for myself as I do each week on Civil War Talk Radio. My guest, likewise, represents only his and or her own views. It's all legal. It's all independent. But we do appreciate the support that the university gives in the form of this office, this headset, this computer. But still, it's our show. And it is a new season of Civil War Talk Radio, Lucky 13. This is the 13th year, academic year, for Civil War Talk Radio. Not something I imagined or planned in the least back in 2004 when I was asked to fill in uh, and do do an interview on the program, do one show, which went well enough. They said, do the next one, uh, but no one said, do the next 300 and some. Uh, planned to do it uh, for more than a decade. But it has been a really interesting experience. The technology has improved over time. The word podcast was invented to describe what it was we were doing. We used to call it internet radio. Thought people would listen live, like terrestrial radio. Very few people do. Uh, Civil War talk radio fan number one, my mother, is listening live. Other than that, there may be six or seven of you around the world, but then thousands, tens of thousands, will click on the show in the weeks to come, so we know 
Uh, it's it's the the pod and puts the pod in podcast. Well, it is exciting to be here for a new season, uh, a new academic season, a new football season. We've got a new chancellor here at East Carolina, new classes to teach. This semester, we've got uh, I've got introduction to public history, history 3900, civil war and sectionalism, history 3225, appropriate for this class, and American military history to 1900, the first half of the survey, 31, history 3121. If any students are listening, bring in a piece of paper to class tomorrow or Friday with the words Irvin McDowell written on it, and you'll get extra credit. Didn't tell you that in class, so it's just those who, are, who, who researched it and found the show by themselves. If any did, we'll find out. Well, the first day of class reminds me of uh, a story which I may have told on the show before. Uh, you'll have to pardon the the increasing CRS syndrome, uh, which I told stands for can't remember stuff. But I, I'll tell it anyway. Uh, the first day of class always reminds me of the first day of class of 1979, my senior year in college at the University of Michigan, where classes always began on a Friday every semester in those days for some un- inconceivable bureaucratic reason. And this made no sense because almost every class had a lecture that meant met twice a week, uh, Monday through Thursday. And then a discussion group uh, subset of the lecture would meet on Thursday afternoon or Friday. So when the semester opened on Friday, your discussion group is supposed to meet, but there hasn't been a lecture yet. So those sections were always canceled. So the the season, the, the academic year began on a day when all classes would be canceled. The only thing is, the first year freshmen don't know this. So in uh, senior year, my friends and I went down to one of the classroom buildings, found uh, all these notices on the doors, class canceled, come to lecture Monday. Found one for a section of sociology 100. We figured mm, freshmen won't even know what that is. I'm not sure I do. Uh, tore the sign down. Went to the bookstore, found out what the book list was, uh, typed it up, and then added some additional works that we recommended, uh, calculus textbooks, Latin poetry, all kinds of random things. And then when the class began, I went in wearing a tweed jacket, and I had a beard, and I taught the class. It was my first teaching experience uh, as an imposter, and talked to the students for half an hour. My friends who were involved in this posed as fellow students. They sat in the class and asked ridiculous questions or acted out or otherwise did things to make the incoming first-year students think that college was far more bizarre and intimidating than it really was. And when it was over, I assigned them a paper to write for Monday. I said, be sure to give this to Professor Ness, or Nessie Baby. He likes you to call him that. You can do that. Uh, be sure you give him the paper at lecture on Monday, and he'll know what it's about. And then we let them go. And it became, uh, I will modestly say, legendary. It got written up in the student paper. For the rest of the semester, I would occasionally encounter students who would say, hey, you made me write that paper I didn't need to do. But just having been in this moment, they, they appreciated it. And last week, the uh, some current U of M students uh, interviewed several of us who had participated in this for an alumni project. So they're still talking about it. Uh, what is it now? 30, 
30 plus years later. It was my first class and one that I will certainly never forget. Never, As Lincoln said about being elected captain of the militia in the Black Hawk War, no uh, electoral success since has ever given me so much satisfaction. Uh, I think I feel that way about teaching uh, Sociology 100. But enough of that. Let's talk Civil War. Uh, quick rundown on the people coming up next week. Manisha Sinha and her book, The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. After that, Stephen Davis, A Long and Bloody Task, The Atlantic Campaign, from Dalton through Kennesaw to the Chattahoochee, May through July 1864. On September 21, Laurie and Foote, The Gentlemen and the Roughs, Violence, Honor, and Manhood in the Union Army. And then on September 28th, Kathy Wright, who's a curator at the American Civil War Museum in Richmond, Virginia. There are more things coming up listed on the website, impedimentsofwar.org, or the Facebook page for Impediments of War. This is the first time we've had, I think, three months of shows listed in advance. Go there and take a look. Mark Gaffney does all the work keeping it up to date. And you can also find the PayPal button there. You can spend your money buying books of the authors by clicking through to Amazon, or you can just click on PayPal and send money directly to Civil War TR at AOL.com. That's the Civil War Book Fund. This year, officially renamed the Civil War Book and Kitchen Remodel Fund. We're going to see if we can raise enough money to remodel the kitchen at Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex. Um, Maybe we'll get enough to do it up with stainless steel appliances. Maybe we'll just get enough to buy a new tablecloth. Let's find out. All of it not tax deductible. Be sure you remember that. And let's get to the show. Our guest tonight, as suggested in the introduction, uh, has many different titles, but we'll start with uh, one many people would recognize, uh, Director of History and Education at the Civil War Trust. He is Gary E. Edelman, and kind enough to join us tonight. Gary, are you there? I am, and thanks so much for having me. Well, welcome to the show. Uh, your your bio is a, a, a fascinating one. If somebody says to you, uh, what's, your, what's your day job? What's your job? Uh, what do you tell them? Is, is the Civil War Trust the main place you spend your hours? Yeah, absolutely. I work full-time and then some at the Civil War Trust. It's my only full-time job, although I do pepper it with some other part-time jobs. But even my job at the Trust, I confess that behind the scenes, um, <laughs> you know, it's almost unfair I get paid to do what I used to do on vacation. Uh, that, that is a great thing. The uh, well, did, how did you how did you get such a position? How did you come by uh, a job that any uh, Civil War enthusiast, any student of public history, uh, would would certainly, uh, I think, would relish doing something like that? How did you How did you get there? Well, I try to summarize it in terms of concepts, but more literally, you know, before I was at the Civil War Trust, I contracted. Um, with the Civil War Trust for many years. I worked for a historical consulting firm in Rockville, Maryland called History Associates and developed a line of business, among other things, for interpretive planning, which really meant laying out battlefields, laying out battlefield trails, helping to craft the content for the signs that would go along those trails. And, and before long, I was doing all sorts of things for the Trust, giving tours for their donors and um, you know, writing things for their magazine and doing all sorts of research, so all manner of stuff. So, I mean, in short, I got this job because, you know, I made myself valuable to all the people that worked at the trust. 
For for the few listeners who aren't familiar with the Civil War Trust, uh, give us a little description of that organization. Yeah, I'm, I'm tempted to launch into more of a um, radio voice for this, but I'll resist the urge. Go for it. Um, <laughs> we, are, well, we are America's largest uh, uh, heritage land preservation organization. We are about 50,000 members, um, the product of a merger um, some time ago between two organizations called the Old Civil War Trust and the Association for the Preservation of Civil War Sites. Um, we save battlefield land, and we educate people about American history. In short, we build parks and tell stories. Um, we have saved about 43,000 acres of Civil War battlefield land. Um, this is not necessarily you know, just forts, hospitals, prisons, things like that. That's not what we do. We save the hallowed ground where the Civil War Sites Advisory Commission, created by Congress, and what they have established as what are the battles and what are the core parts of those battlefields, we save those parts of those battlefields, not where troops marched necessarily, but where they fought and bled. In addition, we also have recently entered a new realm where we're also saving battlefield land associated with the American Revolution and the War of 1812. No, I'm a member. I've donated uh, to Civil War Trust. I get the Hallowed Ground magazine that describes uh, some of the things you're doing. And I have to admit, when I first started getting uh, emails about the the sites, the uh, Revolutionary War sites, my, my initial thought was, are we done with the Civil War? Have we, have we saved everything uh, and we're branching out now? Well, what's the thinking of, of or, or is there more to go? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll give you a couple of things on that. But first of all, um, to quote my boss, Jim Lighthizer, you know, he views saving the Civil War land as like drinking from a fire hose. Civil War uh, battlefields were big and there's a lot of them and we're able to save a lot of them. And sometimes they are the most important remaining parts of those battlefields. But um, we are, there is no shortage at all. And even when we've entered these new spheres, uh, a, a liberal estimate would be that we would be spending 88 to 90% of our time on civil war. Um, the battlefields of the other wars are small. Many of them fought near urban centers, many of which were paved over. Um, so even if we wanted it to be, and we don't, the other wars could not remotely combine um, start to compete with the resources we need to put toward the Civil War. So what, in, in the time you've been there, what's been the biggest success story uh, in terms of battlefield preservation? Uh, I, I would not only get in trouble for trying to just say one, but I would also, um, you know, be unable to do it because East and West, um, we have saved parcels small and large. Um, so a few that come to mind are, you know, after 14 years of trying, we play a very long game. Uh, we were able to save and remove the very large mansion atop Fleetwood Hill at Brandy Station. Um, uh-huh. the, what, we, what we call the epicenter at Antietam, that was a name I actually came up with and I'm very proud of, which was all that triangle of land between the Dunker Church, the East Woods, um, and the Cornfield, and, and the West Woods, basically. Um, you know, that we're very proud of. Um, Lee's headquarters at Gettysburg, um, not only preserving, you know, the headquarters was actually secondary compared to saving the battlefield land because there was actually a battle fought, you know, on, you know, the, the parcels we were able to save. But the restoration effort at Lee's headquarters uh, continues now, which is also part of my job, which is even scarier um, because uh, not only do I get to teach people about Civil War, but I'm actually involved in the restoration of Civil War battlefields, which is very interesting. Um, Preserving uh, the entire first day of the battlefield of North Anna, also known as Jericho Mill, 
um, which, you know, is where the main fighting took place in North Anna, uh, 600 plus acres. Uh, we're very proud of, um, what we have done at so many battlefields in the West, Bryce's Crossroads comes to mind, Champion Hill comes to mind, where without our efforts, there would basically be no battlefield there, Parker's Crossroads, so many others, um, those make us particularly proud as well. So I, I confess I could keep going and going, but those are some of the ones that pop into my mind. So, and, and those are some spectacular sites. Uh, I, as you were reeling them off, I was thinking, boy, I, I, I've seen those in the last year or two. Uh, the, the Fleetwood Hill at Brandy Station, I think I saw a couple of years ago when, uh, as you note, in the midst of this absolutely rural, middle of nowhere piece of Virginia where you can picture the horse lines of horse soldiers back and forth. And then there's one modern, it's not a McMansion, it's not, it's not a, a little garish, ugly house, it's a giant garish, ugly house, uh, right in the middle of it. And, and you're saying that's, that's not there anymore. Correct. It was 6,500 square feet, um, and we are very proud um, to say that it is no longer there. In fact, not only is it now no longer there, but our interpretive trail now dots the top of the hill. Um, there was a smaller house on Fleetwood Hill that is also now gone. Um, and that at that time in 2014 was the largest restoration effort we had ever done. Um, sometimes we take down houses, you know, we restore battlefields, things like that, especially, mm-hmm. you know, of course, houses that weren't there at the time. The Lee's headquarters thing is now by far our biggest restoration effort that we've ever done. Well, we'll come back and talk about that in just a minute. We're going to take a short break. Our guest tonight is Gary Edelman, Director of History and Education for the Civil War Trust. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. 
talking today with Gary Edelman, Director of History and Education for the Civil War Trust, the foremost organization in the preservation of Civil War battlefields. We talked in our first segment a bit about some of the successes that the Trust has had in recent years, uh, restoring, uh, returning Fleetwood Hill at Brandy Station to its original appearance. Uh, and Gary, you mentioned uh, Gettysburg and Lee's headquarters and also the the, the core of the battlefield at Antietam, the, the triangle of land between the cornfield and Dunker Church at East Woods. I was uh, just at both of those this past year with the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours uh, group. This hallowed ground is the name of their tour. And listeners, if you're looking for something to do next May, it's time to start making your plans now. We'll be leading another one of those. Uh, it was uh, It's always a great experience. And one of the great things about it, uh, for me doing it each year, is seeing the changes that are made and the, the really enormous visual impact of the work of the Civil War Trust. It is Now, Gary, at Antietam, there are still pockets of private land within the battlefield, are there not? Uh, there are. I'm thinking, is the Mama Farm still a... a uh, no, no, Muma is all good. Um, you okay. know, roulette, of course, is good. And luckily, mm-hmm. the pockets are pretty small now. And mm-hmm. what we found, if I may, is that once we you know, were able to preserve that triangle, the epicenter in the middle, we found mm-hmm. that dozens of battlefields. Um, you know, if we treat them well, the neighbors talk to other neighbors. So right after that, we were approached by somebody in the East Woods, and we were able to secure six more acres there. Um, soon we got something just off the North Woods, and... Uh, we are just about to announce another exciting um, track at Antietam, which I can't quite talk about, but you'll hear about soon enough. Excellent. Well, it, it, it's very jarring it, uh, to look at the other side of it when you drive through one of these places and there is some privately held land. Uh, one example was outside of uh, Sailor's Creek in, in, on the Appomattox Trail, uh, right outside the very nice state area is a private uh, residence that looks like central casting said send us the beverly hillbillies uh there's just <laughs> junk strewn everywhere and and refrigerators and cars and it's just a a mess of a place and it it really uh is a, a remarkable contrast uh, when you see that right up next to a beautifully preserved battlefield area so it's important to get those pockets either owned by the public or in the hands of responsible landowners uh, and Leeds headquarters that was the, the one that was just astonishing uh, any listener who's been to Gettysburg remembers as you come in on the Chambersburg Pike there's a, a little hotel the Leeds headquarters I don't know what what was it a quality inn, maybe? Uh, yeah, but let me correct you. It was a quality inn. It, is it was a quality gone. inn. And it's gone. It, it's it it's amazing. Down. You come over the ridge, and instead of seeing this hotel, you see the vista that was there in 1863. And it's just breathtaking. If, if The first time you see it, because you don't expect it. You, I mean, our bus crested the, the, the ridge heading out from the town. And I'm saying, okay, and here on the right is Leeds headquarters. In the midst of this hotel is what I'm expecting, and instead I could see the whole field out out to Oak Ridge. Uh, it was really something. Uh, that that is just a, a great piece of work. 
Uh, thank you very much. I, uh, yeah, I, I still have to pinch myself. I've set up a time-lapse camera across the street. We've been recording you know, in time-lapse ever since uh, March when we started work uh, to watch all these buildings come down and watch the green sprout up. Now uh, the dormers are off of the building. There's a new roof on it. So even the building itself inside now is starting to look more um, like it's historic fabric. And, you know, we plan to, uh, we hope that this will be all done with an interpretive trail by fall. Well, it is a great thing. Uh, these are some of the great things that the trust has accomplished. Are there any disappointments, any, anything where it just didn't work out, where development did run its course uh, that well, you can think of? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, I'm an optimistic dude, though. Um, uh-huh. I will say that some battlefields are basically gone. I think of Seven Pines at Richmond. I think I used to think of the battlefield at Franklin. Um, and then I think of parts of battlefields, even, you know, certain parts outside certain towns where there's just a subdivision where the idea of purchasing a hundred half-acre homes and tearing them all down, it's just, it's just not feasible for any preservation right. organization, really. So... So I do, you know, there are clearly, I think of Iuka, um, there are clearly a lot of battlefields that are simply gone and probably gone forever. Well, you could reclaim parts of them. And I did bring up Franklin. That is the Civil War Trust sole reclamation effort where literally we are working with great partners um, in Franklin, Tennessee to actually bring that battlefield back. And even as far as it's come so far, um, people wouldn't have believed it, you know, just five, ten years ago. And it's been a good thing for the city from what I can tell. Yeah, that's one of the keys is, is making communities aware that this is a partnership that will benefit everybody. It'll bring in tourist dollars. It'll bring a favorable attention. It's a, uh, it's not a, a zero-sum game where, where the trust wins and someone else loses. Everybody can benefit from this uh, when, it, when it's done this way. So what um, – I'm sure you get this question all the time. What What's the – uh, biggest uh, target right now? What, what's what's on, on what is in the crosshairs that the trust would most like to accomplish? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't, uh, you know, the, the reason I won't talk about that in detail, that is, mm-hmm. um, is because, you know, there are entities out there that like to find out what we want to buy and then buy <laughs> them first and jack up the prices. And yes, this has happened. And there's even one or two entities I know of that that's their sole purpose. Um, and they, you know, send mailings out to the very owners we've been talking to for 10, 20 years uh, um, and, and try to undercut us and whatnot. So I don't talk in detail about that. None of us do. But I will say that, you know, we base our you know, work on the Civil War Sites Advisory Commission. There are 384 battlefields. You know, there are many fewer than that priority one, what they call priority one battlefields, the main battles of the Civil War. Um, and you can look on a map and probably determine what some of the important properties are. And I will tell you this. For those properties, um, we have for some time known, known who the owner is. We've, there's a good chance we've met with those owners. We probably know, you know, their fa- the names of the members of their family and whatnot um, because we have become friends with them, and we work with willing sellers. We cannot force anybody to sell. Um, so we like people to know who we are, and hopefully eventually when they do want to sell, um, they, they come to us first, and often they do. So that's as far as I'll go, Jerry. Sorry. No, that's very. As a, I feel foolish asking the questions. Like, so tell us, you know, what is the weakest link in your bank security system? Uh, it's, it's not a question you're going to answer, obviously. Well, that uh, I would have told you. Uh, <laughs> so uh, let me change gears altogether um, and ask a question I ask many of the guests on the show. What got you 
interested in the Civil War in the first place? Does this go back to childhood? What, what, how did you get on this path? Yeah, I, uh, I'm not sure if this is common or not, but I know the exact moment that I became mm. interested and later obsessed with the Civil War. It was the last day of my sophomore year of high school. Um, I was a D history student at the time. I liked history, but I wasn't really interested in reading. Um, and I had a friend of mine who was a slower final exam taker than I was. This is in Evanston, Illinois. And I went to the library to wait for him. And for whatever reason, I can't explain why, I walked over to the shelf and happened to pull down a book by William A. Frazzamito called Antietam, um, The Photographic Legacy of America's Bloodiest Day. And I picked that up and opened right to a page of the Dunker Church and saw this photo of dead soldiers and saw that same church in the same spot. And that was it. I was absolutely hooked from that moment forward, especially once I learned that those were essentially the oldest American photos and that you could go find these places today. And for whatever reason, I've always been that kind of then and now guy. Uh, and that was the first time I'd seen it. I can remember being eight or seven and seeing pictures from when I was much younger than that and saying, I wonder where that was taken. Can I go to that tree and stand there again? So this idea of time passing at a certain place has always interested me from my childhood, and I've never been able to explain it beyond that. And I can say this, you know, I started reading about it. Um, that's when I started reading, actually. I was not a good reader um, at all in high school um, until that moment. And I started reading, and I just became more and more interested. And I thought, I moved to Gettysburg in the 90s, I thought eventually it would wear off. I, I am more interested in it today than I've ever been. Wow, that, that's encouraging to hear. That I always encourage students to follow their passion, and then sometimes I wonder, you know, but what if the passion wears off and they're living in a tiny one-room apartment uh, because they chose to follow this path instead of going to business school? Well, uh, it's good to know in some cases it doesn't wear off, and and I think that's probably true of a lot of a lot of us in the field. So. Uh, the Frasnito book is one I'm sure many listeners are familiar with, uh, the pictures of Antietam. And he followed it with one on, on Gettysburg, uh, famous photographs from the battlefield immediately after the battle, and then the same sites today. If one looks at your Facebook page, your interest in Civil War photographs uh, is obviously strong. Talk a little bit about photography in the Civil War and what, what, what you find in it. Uh, and what, what there is for us to find uh, after 150 years of looking at the same pictures. Okay, let me, um, but let me back up first and say, by the way, sure. that I, I did get a business degree because I didn't think you could make money off of history. <laughs> um, so my undergrad was in restaurant management. And, and let me say, this thing that sometimes you read about, you need 10,000 hours to be really good at anything. I think for history, it's probably even longer, at least to be so good at it that you can work at it. I worked for a solid you know, 18 years before I got my dream job, just trying to make money off of, you know, make, make my living off of the Civil War. So that was a long journey, and I don't know if we'll talk about that, but Civil War photography has always been, it was my entry in, and it still remains my greatest Civil War interest, which happily takes me to a lot of Civil War places. Um, I think that it is unlike any other primary source. I'm not denigrating um, the other great primary sources, period, accounts, course are essential. The battlefields themselves, which are probably the most overlooked of all primary sources, um, not at all. But what photographs do, the, the overwhelming reality of what they at least can show, uh, the certitude with which they can show something, and in many cases, the immediacy. You know, photojournalism really was born, in my opinion, on the Virginia Peninsula in 1862, 
um, you know, is unparalleled by anything else. If you hear an account that says this was a, you know, a, a rail fence, but you see photos taken that week showing a stone fence there, and you know where it was taken, you can go back there. You know, and that's the key about photographs. You have to know when and where they were taken. And once you do, they are some of the best primary sources of all. Beyond that, Civil War photographs were recorded, you know, usually on glass plates. That's what allowed them to be widely distributed because those glass plates acted as negatives. But you could also, um, you know, you could do them on tin or copper or things like that as well, going back to old daguerreotypes. But importantly, they were big. Um, these things were 4 by 6, 4 by 10 inches, 7 by 9, 8 by 10 inches, sometimes even larger. And unlike the 35 millimeter negatives, which you and I grew up with, um, and unlike digital cameras, even the best digital cameras today, there are no pixels or there is no grain on a Civil War photograph. It's a chemical sheet, and its grain or pixels are molecular. So you can blow these things up, maybe not endlessly, but close to that, so that the best digital cameras of today are still trying to approach the resolution that you could get on the original plate negatives of the Civil War, which allows you to zoom in and understand and see the details in Civil War photographs and, and really grasp the immediacy. And in the end, they teach you maybe more than even accounts and letters do that these people back then, the people you see in the photos, are just like we are. Different in, a sen- you know, different in some ways, but in essentials, we're all the same. So, even though there are not new Civil War photos obviously being created, there are new ways to look at them, uh, uh, new things to be found in them, uh, new ideas or new new details to emerge. The idea of, of blowing them up uh, enormously is a fascinating one that, that you could do this. I, I recall in the Abraham Lincoln bookshop was selling some uh, prints taken from uh, an original plate of a portrait of Lincoln and, and seeing him in person. And as you say, the resolution is just astounding. There's, there's nothing like it. Uh, we get so used to looking at things online on a screen and that you see a photograph in person, it's much better, but you see a Civil War era uh, print and it, yeah, it, it's just uh, incredible how much detail one can extract from that. Uh, that leads to the, the question of social media. As a 21st century Civil War uh, educator, uh, and student, author, expert, enthusiast, however you, you describe yourself, it seems like social media is, is one of the waves of the future for, well, waves of the present, I should say, for, for communicating this sort of thing. Uh, what, what's your involvement uh, there? Okay, and I have this annoying tendency, which I'm going to exhibit for you right now and going back <laughs> to the last question, if I feel I have something else to say. So let me just say real quick. Please do, yes. You know, there are not new Civil War photographs, um, so to speak. There's no more being created, but there is, if I may, a newness to it. Uh, I mean this in a couple of ways. One, someone discovers a photo that has never been published before. It's been privately held. The public has never seen it before or not anybody that knew what it was. So we do get new Civil War photographs all the time. And again, this is another thing I thought would run out 20 years ago, and it just hasn't. Um, I, I am a founder and vice president of the Center for Civil War Photography. And in every issue, four times a year or so in our Battlefield Photographer um, journal, we publish an unpublished on the printed page photo. 
And it's not even hard. We have to choose between, you know, several things. Mm. So that's one way that Civil War photos can be new. Another way that Civil War photos can be new is that you've been looking at a photo for so long, let's say one of the supposedly at the Gettysburg Address, and then some historian discovers, in this case Stephen Recker, that that photo was actually taken at the Antietam National Cemetery. And suddenly, like I said, once you know when and where a photo was taken, you can suddenly learn from that photo. So in that sense, and that happens a lot as well, we are constantly being hit with, you know, new Civil War photographs, practically speaking. Now, as for social media, um, sorry, did you have a follow-up on that, or should I continue? No, no let, let's, uh, let, let's stay with that for a minute. We're going to take a break in just a minute, and when we come back, we'll, we'll do the social media piece. But the, the photography one is interesting. The, the discovery of, of new ones or the, the identification, the re-identification of old ones, um, I guess one of, the, one of the things teaching history at the beginning of, of every class, especially teaching introductory classes, is is explaining to students that being a revisionist is not a bad thing, that sometimes people toss the word revisionist around like it's a pejorative. If it really were, then we would have nothing left to do in history if if we just stuck with the old stories. But in fact, we do see these old images in a new light, uh, either by finding new ones or by looking at them differently or looking for different things in them. And we have a different perspective from which to view them. We, as the years go by, there's always something new in the past, uh, as, as paradoxical as that sounds. But having said that, let's it. take a short break and come back and talk about social media in the Civil War. Our guest is Gary Edelman, director of history. Excuse me, director of education, uh, history and education for the Civil War Trust. I am Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. 
talking today with Gary Edelman, Director of History and Education for the Civil War Trust, the leading historic preservation organization for Civil War battlefields. And we've been talking uh, in our first segment about some of those battlefields, and we moved on in our last segment to talk about Civil War photography, another major interest uh, of of Gary's. uh, And this in turn leads us to the modern form of image distribution, the internet and social media. And I'm I'm curious, uh, as somebody who obviously is heavily involved with the public through the Civil War Trust, through all your activities, uh, what role you see there for uh, for social media in in Civil War uh, Civil War studies uh, in the Civil War community? Well, like like most things, Jerry, it's a a double edged sword. So first of all, uh, you know I'm responsible for all the educational efforts that come out of the Civil War Trust, those are, you know, things we do in the classroom, things we do on battlefields themselves, and of course, things we do, you know, um, on the web and, you know, in print and things like that. But um, it's hard to, it would be hard to conceive of a more um, easily deployable um, manner of getting the work, word out than, you know, at least in this day and age, than the various, social media we have today. Um, the Civil War Trust has is on all the major platforms from Instagram and Twitter and, um, of course, Facebook, um, you know, through our digital department with, with which I, pro- to whom I provide content uh, sometimes, or my department does. Um, but, you know, mainly on Facebook, we try to push the envelope. We have a massive Facebook page, uh, at least through the Civil War Trust, that is about 290,000, I think, likes. So when we publish something, it's going to be seen by a lot of people. Even when our likes were much lower, I took a simple picture at, uh, you know, Appomattox, and I think it was seen by close to a million people. Um, it was on the anniversary, and it was a good picture, I confess. But, you know, the ability to transfer a picture to a million people you know, and we're a relatively small organization. I mean, we're the biggest civil war organization, but pretty small organization. And that, that a million people see our content just because we took a picture is, is unbelievable. Now, the back end of that is that there are some people that are very enthused about our topic. That's great. There are other people that might not know a lot about it, and maybe they make comments about it that are uninformed. And even worse, there are people, of course, that no matter what you post, they're going to talk about politics or they're going to talk about their feeling about Abraham Lincoln or something like that. So it's a lot of work actually to manage social media. And, um, you know, I, 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 based on time alone, tend to confine myself mostly to Facebook. And I am an administrator for the Civil War Trust page and the Center for Civil War Photography page and my own Civil War page, um, which has really grown. And, and, and through those, I, I get a pretty good window into what people are interested in. Um, what to do and not to do, because there are definitely a lot of taboos out there that just take you more time and cause you trouble. Um, but overall, I consider it, both for business and personally, and for growing your brand, an excellent vehicle you know, to get especially simple points across linking to deeper points. But like anything else, the platform is limited. Um, people have to self-select to go to a depth to where it's going to be truly meaningful. You mentioned the the uh, the risk of of people posting inappropriate things or ignorant or uh, ill ill judged comments or other things, and again, in your role as somebody who interacts heavily with the public, I'm curious where you see public 
attention and interest and uh, even emotion going in regard to the Civil War. I, on the second day of teaching the, the Civil War class this fall, uh, just yesterday, a student came in and as we were sitting down and he said, have you seen this? And handed me a, uh, an article about the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss, dropping the playing of Dixie uh, at football games by its band mm-hmm. as uh, uh, something that made a lot of people uncomfortable. And that's just one, you know, this week's example of the interaction of, of, of the public with our Civil War legacy. So you must encounter that uh, by having a, a large presence online and, and through the Civil War Trust. Uh, do you have a feel for where, where we're headed in terms of the public's understanding of, of what the war meant? Uh, I'm not sure if I can sort of articulate a feeling for where we're headed. I do know that um, anyone in Civil War, meet you, most of the people listening to this, you know, have a slightly different take on what are now considered national events when you're talking about, you know, the Confederate flag, for instance, and, and other Confederate, you know, icons and whatnot. Uh, you know, I've been a guy to Gettysburg for 24 years, and, you know, the Confederate flag has never really been controversial there. Uh, the park has always taken it out for, in its military context, meaning out to battlefields, and it's on monuments there, and it's never really been seen out of context there. Uh, that is until it enters the national spotlight. So I, I think it's interesting. You almost have to s- split people up between people who have been living in the Civil War community for a while and have kind of thought about and become comfortable with whatever their version of the issues are um, mm-hmm. um, and, and separate that from sort of the mass media, you know, where they're, you know, things blow up very quickly for today's news. Um, I, I will say that the staying power um, of, of more recent Civil War issues has been astounding to me um, how it has ingratiated itself into society. I don't know where it's headed. Um, I will always hope that people, you know, I think anybody who tries to eradicate the past, you know, as a society tends to come to regret it. Um, you cannot judge people of the past by today's lenses. It's one thing to feel the way you do today um, about mm-hmm. the past. That's fine. And it's, it's one way to control you know, how people use things today to a certain extent, but the idea of trying to eradicate, you know, the tenets under which this country was founded um, and demonizing everybody because they don't feel like we do, well, you know what, the same thing will happen to us in 100 years if viewed through their lenses. So um, I'm, I'm pleased with the discussion overall, I guess I would say, but I don't know where it's headed. It, it is. It's a tough uh, and ongoing issue, and I, I, I said exactly those words to the students yesterday. That if you if you wish to condemn the past uh, because they don't live up to our standards, you're setting yourself up for exactly the same thing happening. Uh, future generations looking at us and going, "How could they have been so ignorant or inhumane yeah. or cruel or whatever?" <laughs> uh, and yet, at the same time, the difference—the difference between empathy and sympathy—to to understand why people did things does not imply agreeing with why they did things. Uh, it, it's a fine line to walk, often, and to uh, uh, to do that. In terms of publications online, uh, that's the the new way of getting stuff out. But you've also uh, written stuff the old-fashioned way that's been published uh, in, in paper. Uh, are you working on anything, or 
do you have anything uh, uh, in in the past that was particularly significant uh, that you want to share with us in terms yeah, of well, publications? I mean, you know, yeah, I, I like to fire on all cylinders. Something that was easier to do before I had kids. Um, uh, always. <laughs> Uh, my kids now are six and eight, so it uh, keeps you busy indeed, and I'm busy with a lot of other things. So, yes, I, I've been writing a massive Civil War then and now book for 14 years now, <laughs> so <laughs> I really need to finish that. Um, and I have numerous articles and other books that I want to work on. I, I still want to go back to more of the south end of the Gettysburg battlefield, sort of my specialty when it comes to military stuff and sort of... Um, the idea of place. So I'm toying around with another book on Little Round Top or Devil's Den. Um, and Devil's Den, you know, that, that was my first book I co-wrote with Tim Smith. That's Tim Smith of the East, not Timothy B. Smith of the West. Um, you know, that was an award-winning book. I figured all my other books would win awards too, but, <laughs> you know, they, they haven't. So in a way, that Devil's Den book means the most to me um, and is uh, still the best-selling book. Um, I actually ever wrote myself um, or co-wrote myself. Uh, the, you know, some of the other books I've done with the Civil War Trust have obviously seen, you know, a little bit better distribution than that um, and naturally have a, uh, a wider reach. But I would say, you know, I do spend much more of my time now writing articles, not just for the Hallowed Ground magazine, but for, you know, Civil War Monitor, Civil War Times, um, Civil War News, um, and especially what I'm known for more than anything, you know, nowadays is making short videos. Um, a while ago, about five, four years ago, I, I had the idea at the trust that if we could write, if we could do civil videos on basic Civil War topics, I know they would go well. And I knew that because as a battlefield guide, it's the basic stuff when you talk about Civil War organization or you talk about Civil War artillery, you talk about prisons in a minute or two, you just see people, you know, their brains are firing. They get it. If you come up with a simple way to say that. So we conceived this idea called in four. So you're going to cover Civil War artillery in four minutes or, you know, black soldiers in four minutes or Confederate leaders in four minutes. Those things have been a godsend, reaching millions of people. Um, strangely, we were trying to do something outside the classroom when we did it, but they're about the most popular thing we do with teachers now. So I do all manner of numerous types of short videos to try to get across simple points to an increasingly impatient public who... I'm thinking that four and two minute videos are too long now. So really you have to try to grab people in 18 seconds or 44 seconds um, to do it. And we're about to launch a series of new videos that talks about each state in the civil war. And those are about 90 seconds to two minutes long. Um, and again, might prove to be too long. So it's, it's, it's hard to sit down and write a 200,000 word book when in that same amount of time I could put out 40 videos that are going to reach a lot more people. <laughs> so it's a really tough balance actually. It is, and I'm sitting here frantically scribbling on the side saying, oh, I got to get some of those four-minute videos for my classroom. Uh, increasingly now, you know, not just images, but videos get worked into the classroom presentation, and they're always looking for new ways to reach students, and that's uh, uh, a useful idea. Or, or not even doing it in the classroom, but doing it in there through, through Blackboard or some other vehicle where the students watch it offline uh, out of the classroom and come in and talk about it. Um, Read so my I'm mind. Steal, I'm stealing ideas <laughs> as, as we go here. Uh, we've got just a few minutes left, and I want to turn back to the, the traditional media of the book where all this starts. Uh, and because of your 
your your wide interest and and wide experience. I'm curious who you are reading these days, and uh, I'll throw out two questions: Who are you reading these days, or planning to read, and uh, who is most significant that you've read in the past? Answer one or both. <laughs> Well, it, the, the past question is easy, and it happens to be who I'm reading these days. Uh, uh, you know, my entry into the Civil War was through the work of William Frazanito, um, mm-hmm. and he has, you know, six books about Civil War photography. They remain my Bibles, and because I'm, I, I run an annual seminar, this is the 16th one called The Image of War, and by the way, taking your cue, if anybody is really obsessed with Civil War photography, go to imageofwar.org and think mm-hmm. about this seminar in Gettysburg, October 21 to 23, uh, 2016. Um, so I am in preparation for that seminar in Gettysburg, reading the work of William Frasenito right now. Um, at the same time, I uh, am looking through uh, Jim James McPherson's For Cause and for Comrades. Um, I think Stephen Sears' work uh, had a huge impact upon me in the early years. The first biography I ever read uh, was, uh, for, uh, was The Young Napoleon, and I haven't been a McClellan fan ever since, although I kind of like him nowadays. Um, and I'm actually reading the diary of George Templeton Strong. Um, I, I, I struggle in getting into diaries and biographies because I am always preparing for the next tour, the next event. Um, so I'm always reading about events. I'm always <clears> reading about battles and campaigns and things like that. So I struggle to read biography the way some people do. And I've always neglected reading George Templeton Strong, and I'm really enjoying finally doing this. So I usually read three or four Civil War books at a time, and of course I consult other ones just about every day. I don't know if that sounds sad to people or if I sound lucky. <laughs> oh, I'll go with the latter for that. <laughs> um, good, good. One last question in, in just the last minute. Uh, the Civil War talk radio time machine is a question you used to ask every week and got away from it for a while, but I want to bring it back. Uh, if you could go back into the 1860s for 30 minutes, guaranteed safe travel there, safe travel back, you're only there for 30 minutes, who would you want to talk to? Who talk to? Well, that, that one was pretty easy for me. Winfield Scott Hancock. Um, uh, he's, he's always been among my favorite figures. Um, and I think in talking to him, I would find him accessible. Um, I would not want to speak to a go back in time only to speak to somebody who's really reserved and wouldn't share anything. <laughs> I think Winfield Scott Hancock would talk to me, and he is sort of the quintessential Civil War general. You know, not perfect, a real person um, who accomplished real things, and I, and I feel that I can understand his, you know, from, what I, from, from the biographies I read from Jordan's book and others, you know, I feel like I could understand him, so I don't need to think about that one. I would love to talk to Winfield Scott Hancock. Excellent. And if I had to pick a time, I would I'm, talk I'm, I'm to gonna, him. I'm going to cut you off, Gary, just because we're, okay. we're almost out of time. Uh, but okay. give us the website of the Civil War Trust for listeners who want to yeah. go there and donate money. It's easy, uh, civilwar.org, and we have more Civil War content than anybody else um, anywhere. Well, Gary, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for joining us on Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks so much for having me, Jerry. Uh, I've wanted to do this a while, and I'm, I'm glad I was able to. And listeners, uh, go to civilwar.org, uh, learn about the Civil War Trust, contribute to the cause. And as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. 
Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. It's staff and management. Hi, I'm Sam Nussbaum, WellPoint's Chief Medical Officer. We proudly support the March of Dimes mission to improve the health of babies and fight premature birth. We're helping the March of Dimes fund breakthroughs in research and community programs that help more moms have full-term pregnancies and healthy babies. Join us in working together to provide children with a healthier start in life. Visit marchofdimes.org. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your